My name is Will Small, and I'm trying to become the man my kids need me to be. To my fellow men, I think we've all got some work to do. What if it's time to rebuild what we call manhood for the sake of ourselves and the generation growing up behind us? It's not always easy talking about the real stuff, but we can't afford not to. So let's get into it. This is the Mankind Podcast. Over the last few years, as I've found myself thinking more about manhood and issues related to gender, there have been two big things that have led to significant changes in my thinking. First, my wife Sam has played a huge role, opening my eyes to the often invisible inequalities that still exist for many women today. She's honestly been my biggest teacher. Second, my role as a dad. Having kids just makes you look at everything through a fresh light. And this has been even more true over the last couple of years as we've learned that both our sons are on the autism spectrum. Seeking to understand what life is like for my wife and my neurodiverse sons is the biggest motivator for me to continue to reflect on how I can be a more healthy man. And my guest on this episode could not be more well-equipped to speak into this space. Nicole Rogerson is a director at Neurodevelopment Australia and the founding director and CEO of Autism Awareness Australia. She has two sons, and discovering her eldest had autism really set her on the trajectory to where she is today, advocating for and empowering other families around Australia navigating their own autism journeys. Nicole's an incredibly inspiring human being. In our conversation, we spoke about the modern landscape men and women are navigating when it comes to the responsibilities of work and home. Then we spoke about autism and parenting more broadly, and Regardless of whether or not you have autism in your household or family, Nicole shared so much eye-opening and insightful thoughts that can be applied in all kinds of ways. And I honestly think anyone who listens to this conversation is going to be better for it. Nicole Rogerson, it is so wonderful to be able to sit with you this morning and have a conversation. I really appreciate your time. Uh, You're a person who wears many hats. I met you through your role as the CEO and founder of Autism Awareness Australia. I understand you also have a role as a director at Neurodevelopment Australia. You're a mom. You're obviously someone who's doing all sorts of things, but how do you like to introduce yourself? Could you kind of flesh some of this out? Give me a few paragraphs on the life of Nicole. Oh, my goodness. Um, <laughs> that makes me sound really impressive. Um, thank you for having Will. Um, I have a couple of jobs that make me sound like a, a full-on grown-up, but I'm not. Because of the nature of the work I do, you know, I'm involved in, in the autism world purely because my eldest son was diagnosed with autism. So... Um, Autism ended up being one of the first jobs I did after I left university because I had Jack when I was quite young. So I haven't really known a real world job, if you like. I constantly say I think I'm pretty unemployable Um, in that, you know, for the last 18, 19, 20 years, um, I have really been working in the autism field and the field of neurodevelopment and and purely that is because of our personal family situation. So um, I sound like I've got really big amazing jobs, but really they're of my own making really more than anything. And, and obviously surrounded by my interests. Yeah. Well, I can relate to that. I mean, this podcast for me is personally motivated by my own role as a dad and how that had an impact on how I think about manhood, um, having two sons, which kind of made me think, oh, 
I'm not man enough to raise young men and then realizing maybe that's a really silly bit of programming somewhere in my in my brain. Um, so I can totally relate to when your your professional and your personal world are integrated and for me it feels like I can't imagine it being any other way. Maybe it's the same for you. Yeah, look, I couldn't back then and 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 I think things change, you know, differently when when many years go past, but Back then, our singular focus was our son, who had been diagnosed with this condition that was was making life really difficult for him. So um, I was lucky enough at that situation to have uh, a partner that could take the reins in terms of, you know, doing the work, the paid work that required us to be eating and living and doing all that, and I could concentrate solely, wholly on Jack and his needs at the time. Um, having only one child um, also, you know, enabled me to do that. So there were there were lots of privileges that came at that time, whereas, you know, not all people are, are luckily able to do that at that time. So over the years, that's morphed into other work, but it, it's probably always informed by my experiences back then when I was a, a new mum and, and Jack's diagnosis was new. Yeah. You've shared a little bit of it there. But would you just take me back a little bit and share some of your family story in terms of, um, you know, when Jack was born and and when did you realise that there was autism in the mix? And obviously it's a long unfolding story, but could you give me kind of a bit of the bird's eye view of some of the significant moments in your family's kind of unfolding story? I'll give you the 22nd view (laughs) rather than the long view. Um, You know, fundamentally for us, my husband and I would both admit to this day that we're both idiots. Um, And we got married very quickly. I'm not sure, not for the reasons people get married very quickly. We we, we met and got married within a few months. And we we decided to have a child a couple of years later. But there is an age difference between my husband and I. There's 16 years difference between us. So the decision to have children early was a little bit informed by the fact he was a bit older and um, I hadn't really started a significant career. I'd just finished university or I was still at university, in fact. And we had Jack and I honestly thought we thought it was a bit of a lark. This will be funny. Children say, nice, let's have one. (laughs) We just honestly thought it was a bit of a laugh and let's give it a go and let's have a kid. Um, And it was. It was a laugh and it was wonderful and in, in those lovely burgeoning days of when you first get married and you you have a little baby and everything seems like um, the world is golden and it was for a period of time there. And he was a great little baby, um, which lots of autistic parents will will usually report. Their babies are are quite quiet and contented and you think you've given birth to this child with, you know, ten fingers and ten toes and everything's healthy and everything's fantastic and what's to be worried about? Um, It's only later when their development is not quite going according to plan, that parents start to, to wonder. And, and really, um, Ian and I were not wondering. We were, you know, first-time parents. We had no idea. We made an excuse for everything that Jack couldn't do. You know, he's too much of a genius. That's, you know, that's why he doesn't have time to talk to us because, you know, he's just at a higher level. <laughs> we just came yeah. up with every excuse in the book about what was really unfolding in front of us and that we couldn't see. Um, and then finally, when it dawned on us that this was a situation, it became, you know, tools down, that everything else gets set aside and we focus on him. And we did that really for the next 10 years. Um, Jack had one of the longest early intervention programs of any child on the planet, I think. Um, and then that just, that led me to think, well, hang on a second, Jack's lucky. He's got these amazing therapists coming to our house doing this individualised program and work out exactly what he needs. Um, It seemed unfair to me that that was only available to a certain set of families 
in Sydney who could afford it or organise it. Mm. So that's really what started um, me opening an early intervention centre so that more children could have access to those kinds of services. And that's what I did for the next 14 years. Wow. Well, you're a very impressive human being, Nicole. And um, I love that you you took what I guess you learned and, and experienced from your own situation and then wanted to share that with as many people as possible. That's a wonderful thing. There's a bit of selfishness to it as well, because at the time I, I thought the way that therapy was structured in Sydney at the time and, and really across Australia was that you know, therapists were working individually. Uh, they'd come to your house, they'd earn an hourly rate, then they'd get in their car and drive off and they'd go to the next family and work with the next child. But it dawned on me, hang on a second, none of these girls are going to stay in this industry. They can't get have a sick day. They don't get holiday pay. You know, it was just all these practical things that I thought, these skilled therapists who know how to teach my son and know how to teach these kids are not going to stay around. We're going to lose them to other industries because they're going to grow up and want to have kids and families of their own. So starting the centre was kind of a little bit selfish. It was like, I want to build an industry that people can work in and it's a career, it's not a job, and they'll stay around and they'll stay around in the long term. Well, if that is the fruit of your selfishness, then I give you permission to continue to be selfish. Um, yeah, it, was, look, it was the benefit of Jack, but then it ended up being the benefit of a lot, lot of other kids and, and still to this day, and that's really important. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I guess I'm interested in having really honest and at times um, difficult conversations about what it means to be a man in Australia today. And I think it's pretty lopsided if we're not also talking about what it means to be a woman in Australia today. Those are clearly intertwined conversations. And um, I thought, you know, with, with you, you might be someone who could speak well to being in a position with a number of responsibilities. Obviously, there's life at home is, is, you know, full of its own set of responsibilities. Then you're in some significant positions, founder and CEO of an organization that takes a bit of time. Um, and that's not your only role professionally. So plenty to juggle there. And I'd just love it if you could maybe just give me a bit of an insight from your perspective. How do you think being a woman has impacted your role in that juggling act over the years? Do you think there's been anything distinctive about it or any particular cultural expectations that you've had to wrestle with wearing those different hats? Yeah, it's a really good question um, because I probably have a different view of it now looking back at it than I had when I was doing it. I think you're right. I think there's there's cultural expectations, there's, there's personality, there's, there's a whole range of things that go into it. But at the time, I can honestly say there was no thought in how do you build an organisation, how do you build a company, how do you do these things and be a mum, how do you juggle it, how do you be a good wife, how do you have a good marriage, how do you be a good leader. There was absolutely no time to think about that. I've had a lot of years to think about it since, but no time at the time. You just do it. You just do what needs to be done. And um, I think maybe later in people's relationships do they think about how it could have been better. And in my case, I was just get out of my way, I'm busy. And Jack was our sole focus. And then eventually when we had another son, Tom, you know, his needs were as important as Jack's. They were just different. Mm. So, you know, how do you run a workplace which predominantly hired women, I should say. It was 99% women um, that worked for me. So some of those had children and, in actual fact, some of those had children who had autism because I wanted to make sure we had lots of lived experience within the organisation. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do you be a mum, juggle school holidays, run this this company that so many people are relying on, whose clientele come with a fair amount of stress and pressure themselves, and then 
turn around and go home at five o'clock, turn it all off, lock the place up and go and make dinner and help kids with the homework. And mm. um, and the answer is you don't. Um, you, you can't do it all and you can't do it all well. But, you know, I think you talk about the decisions men have to make in that mix, whereas mm. I actually think it's what women allow to go on that is the biggest factor here. Mm. And I'll explain it in that I was really lucky is that I, that I had a husband with an unusual job. He's a radio broadcaster. So he never had a job that required him to work 12 hours a day. Um, so again, that's another plus. Uh, so he was around to help. He could, he could go to the supermarket and buy what we needed. He could, um, ferry the kids to and from school if I couldn't at a particular time, but between the two of us, we were able to manage that juggle and he was really good at contributing, but, I would say the biggest thing that gets in the way of men truly helping in a family and being equal partners is often women. It's often the mums. We often think we do it better. Um, Don't get in my way. Let me do it. You're hopeless at it. Um, And we don't let men step up. I think we get in the way and, and almost treat them like they can't do it and they won't do it well enough. But that's on us. I actually think that's on women. And, you know, it requires, you know, strong men to be able to turn around and call women on that stuff. But um, I don't think it's always, you know, men taking the easy option here. I think it's sometimes us inserting ourselves in. Yeah, I sometimes think about it. My little metaphor is that um, it's like I was raised as a Windows 95 computer and, you know, maybe my wife was like Mac OS or something, superior model. Um, (laughs) And now I've kind of got to change my software. And it doesn't happen overnight. And there can be, I think, that sort of tricky situation of, yep, yeah, I can do this better. I've done this a hundred times, so I'll keep doing it. And we, we have a lot of conversations about this because it's like, how, how early do you start to change that process? Or if you're right down the track, you know, how do you do it when it feels like it's a much more uphill battle? A book that really helped me understand some of this and, and to get a bit more motivated about not just cruising, the way that I was, you know, the software I've been given with is um, Annabelle Crabb. She's got a book called The Wife Drought. You know, she talks about um, we've adjusted our expectations of women in the workplace over the years, which is a great thing. Obviously, there's, there's more access and opportunities, still a lot more work to be done there. But we haven't really adjusted our expectations of men at home. And maybe that's kind of what you're getting at there as well. Like, And, and we haven't necessarily adjusted our expectations of men working less hours or having more flexibility or juggling those things a bit more. So it's kind of like we've got a bit of lopsided scales and we think that this whole gender equality thing all comes down to just women at work rather than men and women in all spaces. What's What's been your experience of that or any further reflections that that brings up for you? It's funny, you know, I'm, I'm going to take the role there off Annabelle's book and say, again, it's on us. Um, I'm actually somebody who's terribly obsessed with personal responsibility. So I'm probably like, well, you know what, if men aren't great at home and you're married to a guy who's not pulling his weight and isn't an equal partner, well, it's on you. Why are you still married to him? Um, you know, I, I, I really think it's what we as accept as women. And I'll give you an example of it. The working from home during COVID has been, been tricky. And for a lot of my team at Autism Awareness, they have young children uh, and I don't have young children anymore. So the pressure hasn't been there for me. But uh, during the period when they were working from home and schooling children from home and juggling that that arrangement, I could see in my own team that they were doing that juggle. 
it wasn't equal with their husbands. Mm -hmm. They were the ones that were really taking the load. And it was probably a couple of times I probably completely overstepped my boundary of an employer um, to add my my comments to it. It's just like, why is it your job? Why is your job not as important as his job? So some people might say, oh, if the woman is earning less money, her job has to be secondary to his. Um, I don't think that's actually right. I think Mm. everybody's contributing whatever they're contributing. It'll ebb and flow over the years and some will be more than others. But I really put it down to women. And women do this also. Another example of this is when women say the sentence, I can go out on X day because my husband is babysitting. Mm, I hate that sentence. My blood boil. (laughs) Your husband is not babysitting his own freaking children. (laughs) Amen. He's parenting. Yeah, I agree 100%. Um, it's the same thing, you know, people will often say that the maybe the woman can't go back to work because her wage will barely cover the childcare costs. And it's like, why is her wage the one covering the childcare costs? Exactly. It's a combined decision that you have made as a grown-up saying that we two people want to have a child. These are the expenses that are involved. This is what's going to happen. And it is, it typically is women who take the part-time role or, you know, don't take the executive position or, or move up the career ladder why their children are young and as a result you'll have a lot of women my age in their their mid-40s who are then you know children are leaving school they're coming back into the workplace and all of a sudden they don't have a big bank of superannuation Um, they might have a cv with a lot of years missing and they're not necessarily going to go and get those higher level executive jobs or jobs with you know more responsibility because they've had years out of the workforce but you're forgetting that their years out of the workforce wasn't mean they were lying on a beach doing nothing they were they were managing a small unprofitable business which is otherwise (laughs) known as a family (laughs) yes it's it's the hardest job ever I I hear what you're saying and I love it. And I think, yes, um, women who are listening to this, don't enable your husband's crap um, and and let some gaps open up to show um, maybe where there, there needs to be a bit more stepping up. Nicole, for those that are listening that are men, which is probably like the majority of the audience of this podcast, what would you want to say to them in terms of how they can even just become more aware of this? Obviously, we all have to take some responsibility for how we shift our our sort of, I guess, cultural messaging and expectations of each other and personal responsibility. For me, a lot of it just has come down to women in my life actually opening my eyes to stuff that I was blind to and realizing that unequal emotional load or domestic load or whatever it was, I just didn't even have language for it. So what are the things you would actually want the average Australian man to become increasingly aware of to enable maybe more of that ongoing healthy conversation around how we shift things up and get a better balance happening? I think you just made a really good point. Sometimes men don't know what they don't know and might not even mean to be the one not carrying the load. It's This is not always men sitting back going, oh, ha, 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 I've managed to find a wife who will do more than I do, you know, lucky me. But oftentimes how we've been raised, you know, then goes on to affect the way that we act as adults. So, you know, I had an incredibly feminist mother who was very pro-education and pro-me getting to university and so on and so forth, but she used to cook my dad a hot breakfast every morning if they're married 
life. <laughs> I don't mm-hmm. know why. She would make the breakfast. He would sit down and eat it. And um, then she'd clean up the kitchen and then she'd go to work. Um, and at no stage was uh, my father required to be part of that, which is so odd to me looking at back at that behaviour now. But it was ingrained, right? So if I was a man, chances are, having been raised that way, I'd assume that that might be how my life would go. So I think for men, it's up to them to say, hang on a second, how do I behave as a grown-up? And more importantly, I think, and this is not a negative, I don't mean to sound negative, um, but it's like what happens if your wife gets hit by a bus? Like Mm. I I often think that. We joke in our family because my husband can't internet bank and we always say if mum gets hit by a bus, that's it, dad's at the homeless shelter because he's got no idea (laughs) on anything. But so I think for men it's, it's a personal reflection, right? It's like you saying, what do I bring to this relationship? And not only that, but what am I doing that makes her want to stay with me? Am I contributing? What what makes me a great dad? What's going to make my sons grow up to be, or and, and daughters to grow up to be people that demand and deserve the respect that everybody should get, you know? And that's, you know, that's on you. You kind of have to look back at yourself and say, what am I not doing? And I can imagine a lot of men might say, you know, she cuts me out of certain things or she's just, she takes over. Because I will admit a lot of women do and I do it as well. I really, really give a lot of credit to my husband. And I, I say that we're a 60-40 family. We're not a 50-50 family. But we're, we're not a 50-50 family because I do 10% more and I'm, I'm kind of obnoxious about it. You know what I mean? I'm kind of like, I would do it better. I will do the bathrooms better than you because you're kind of hopeless. Mm-hmm. And that's on me. You know what? I could just turn around and say, you know what? The bathroom's going to be foul for a little while until somebody works it out. Um, so sometimes men, I think it's really quite legitimate for them to say, she locks me out of those things or she takes over, she leads the family and I just go along. But I don't think men often realise how nice it is to have a partner that actually steps up that doesn't let you continue on with that crap and who actually stops you from doing that and says, no, come on, we're partners in this and they're our kids and this is our family and they're our decisions. Um, They shouldn't be gendered decisions. It shouldn't be the husband takes care of the lawn and the car and Mm. the wife takes care of the kitchen and the shopping. I mean, that those days have got to be done. Yeah. One thing that I was just thinking while you were sharing some of that is that there is a real strength in a relationship that we don't have to be carbon copies of each other. We can have different things that we're good at or different things that we take ownership of. That's a wonderful thing. It can it can mean that we're more effective. But if we don't have like a real lived understanding of what the other person is doing, then we make certain assumptions about what it actually involves. And like a classic example would be like a guy coming home and the house is not, this is maybe a bit old school, but might have the attitude that, hey, you've just been home all day. The house is a mess. What have you been doing? But if you actually taste what it's like to be at home with your kids all day, and particularly if they have special needs, which is part of my household as well, um, you're just like, yeah, the house is trash, but I've been like on every minute of the day. And so there's sort of something about if people just actually could get a little bit more insight, whether that's through asking questions or, you know, maybe the COVID thing has given more guys the opportunity to see what home life is like. Um, But maybe we could still kind of have different, roles and strengths, but actually have a whole deeper level of empathy and understanding for the unique things that we we juggle and carry. I think that's true. And actually, if you're too young for this, but if you went back to the 80s, there was a super cheesy movie that was made and it was called Mr. Mum. And it was about a man who had to take over the role of looking after his family. And his wife went back to work because he'd lost his job. So outdated mm-hmm. now if you saw it. But the, the joke would be uh, for a lot of men is like, 
fine, you stay home. Let me go to work because I can promise you work is so much easier than being at home raising small children, let alone those who have learning difficulties. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just easier. You literally get dressed in the morning, you go somewhere, everybody's a (laughs) grown-up, people are nice to you. I mean, work is excellent and you get paid. My God, it's so easy. So, you know, I, I think... It's it's what it's the old argument, paid and unpaid work, right? It's mm. where we get stuck in this what is valued, how long does it take, when does it happen, how does it occur? And I think for modern couples, you know, things are shifting. People do understand um, that, that, you know, everything needs to be shared, but some people have got themselves into some bad habits, a lot of it out of the experience of how they were raised. But ask yourself what you want your kids to remember you about you when you're old and they're grown-ups. You know, what what parts do you want them to be? Do you want them to look back and say, oh, my parents were fantastic and they had this wonderful collaboration going. You know, they split to carry the load, if you like it. And and I think that's what you need to look at, whereas you look back at that 1950s, 1960s father who did sort of nothing and wasn't really necessarily part of their kids' lives in any meaningful way, they probably had really different relationships as grown-ups when they were older people than we're going to with our kids. And I love very honest, frank relationships. Now that I have children who are young adults in their 20s, there's nothing we don't talk about in this family. There is nothing Mm. that we don't share. There's nothing that is off limits. And I love that, um, call it a flat management structure, but I really do like the fact that it's a family of equals. And I think that has to be modelled by mum and dad from a very young age. I love that. It makes me think that maybe it's like back in the day there was sort of generic job descriptions. This is what man does. This is what woman does. And now we have this wonderful opportunity to like write our own job descriptions and to do that together and to actually work out what is actually going to help you know, like you said, um, to give our kids something that they can actually talk about the way that things were done in our household was a beautiful collaboration and had wonderful results. Also, I mean, this comes back again. It comes back to employers as well. I, I, I you got to call people out on their crap, right? And I, yeah. I'm going to do it here now because I'm a, I predominantly have always hired females and the occasional male I've hired, I've been really mean to. Um, <laughs> but it, 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 I'm joking when I say like, I know that um, one of the things I did is I had two incredible employees who were really instrumental in helping me run the early intervention centre for a number of years. And both of them had children who were quite severely autistic. But as a result, I did a deal with them that every school holidays, they would have the school holidays off because it was just too much of a juggle for them and their children. Mm -hmm. And I weighed that up at the time and thought, okay, I think they're fantastic as part of the company, so I'm going to let them do that and I'll cover the school holidays. But as a result, I went for years and years and years never having a regular school holiday with my own children. Mm. So that's on me, right? Would I have asked a man to do that? If they were dads of children with autism, would I have said, yeah, take the school holidays off? And I think the answer is I wouldn't have. Mm. So I think sometimes in all of our roles, whether we're the employer or the employee or or whatever the relationship is, sometimes we have to call ourselves out and look at our own behaviour and just say, how could that have been better for everybody? And the answer would have been that we would have done a rotation, that the three of us would have rotated one job to make sure that everyone got a little bit of time with their kids and everybody was contributing to holding the fort down. And I don't think we should make those decisions based on gender, but I suspect we still do. Mm, 100%. That just really, to me, reinforces that this is a conversation for everybody and for all the spaces that we inhabit for work and home. 
Um, it's not just a conversation for for one gender or one minority of people. I like I absolutely love that your audience is men and that you've probably got all these lovely, thoughtful, nice people. But actually, I'm going to argue that if they're listening to your podcast, they're already thoughtful, lovely, nice guys anyway. Um, you know, it's the meatheads we've got to get to. But but when I say you know, it, it, not to dismiss that there is a message for men, there is. But I hope my contribution is to it. Um, is to encourage men to challenge the women in their life uh, to also buck the trend. Because if we're asking men to do it, they can't do it on their own. It's not their job to right this wrong. I think it's all of our combined jobs to say, how could we we run a more equitable shop and, and across family and work and everything to do with your lifestyle. So autism, we've talked a little bit about it so far, but obviously it's been a significant part of your life, um, you know, personally and professionally and, and really in an integrated way. Um, and it's obviously a big part of the lives of many Australian families, my own included. My two sons um, are on the spectrum as well. And I'm sure there are people listening to this who are in a similar situation or, or there's no doubt that they have um, people in their life who are on the spectrum. So with all of your expertise in this area, I know that there's... Um, there's kind of no one size fits all answer here, but what are some of the unique aspects of raising um, young boys and men who are on the autism spectrum? Well, that's such a big question. And you know what? There are some one size fits all answers here. Um, and, and they're certainly not answers I would have had when your child's first diagnosed. So absolutely recognise for those parents who are younger and at an earlier stage um, and, and dealing with some of the challenges that autism can bring. It can be a really stressful time. Um, you're doing A-level parenting, which means you're a parent, but you don't ever get a moment off. You don't get a day off. You don't get an hour off. You're, you're on the whole time. So it can be a really stressful time. And it's really, I understand, quite different for me to be able to talk about it you know 25 years in advance and look back and say these are the things you should do um I can promise you I wasn't doing them all um but hindsight is a wonderful thing right yeah and I um, want to learn from your hindsight I'm at the <laughs> earlier end of this so help me out well I think you know I think it's such a trick that anybody who knows anything about autism will know just as you said it's a spectrum and it's very broad so um, for some people it affects them in in very minor ways and for others it's a significant disability that will impact every aspect of their life and any ability they have to lead an independent life and and everything in between so talking about autism um, it's tricky because you will see some people, I mean, if you've been watching Love on the Spectrum, um, you'll see all these very capable, young, wonderful people who are able to talk about dating and are talking about their adult lives and what they're doing and how they're working, um, right through to, you know, the kids who will never speak and um, who always will remain uh, and requiring 24-hour care. So people's experiences of how you parent that broad spectrum is really hard. You can't write a book that says, or I have actually a friend who says she should write a book called, you know, how to teach your child with autism in 1 million easy steps. (laughs) (laughs) No one will buy it (laughs) Um, because that's it. There is a million steps to this, but the overall principles that go with it is somewhere along the line. And I don't know what day it is, but somewhere along the line, the pushing against it, the worry, the panic, the concern, just goes away and what replaces it is this wonderful level of acceptance and it's not that you're limiting your child's life you're not you're not saying i'm accepting it is what it is so let's just get on with things it's not stopping trying 
it's not stopping supporting. It's it's just that you get to this point where you realise what is normal. There is no normal. God knows what it is. And for a lot of parents of kids with autism, I think you look at other people's lives, particularly when your kids are tiny and they're going to the 25,000 birthday parties that get held every year mm-hmm. and you're looking at the other kids' behaviour and, and what they're doing and you're looking at your child who's probably struggling in those settings. And the whole time you're making this comparison because you can't not because it's so freaking obvious. Mm-hmm. And that is that is something that parents put themselves through and the worry and that goes along with that lasts for many years. When I look back at it now, I think, oh, my God, it so didn't matter. Jack was going to just be Jack. He's Jack. He's our Jack. Um, he's fabulous and quirky and weird and he's not like everybody else, but that's what makes him him. And aren't we bloody lucky to have him in our life? So um, I don't know whether I've, I've probably just worked in autism for too long and I've had the absolute luxury of now knowing thousands of individuals with autism and family so maybe I don't know what normal looks like either but I think when you've got a child with autism you know them better than any other parent is going to know their child because you have analyzed it from every angle you've worked on every part of it you you have been so involved in that child's life because that child needed it and they needed that support and I hope for most families it ends up meaning that you become a a unit a unit that nobody can shake and that that nobody can come up against. And I understand that's not true for some families. You know, the divorce rate is is still quite high for, for couples who have uh, children with special needs. Um, again, a friend joked yesterday and said, well, that might be the divorce rate, but nobody ever asked the rate of people who wanted to get divorced at some point. <laughs> um, it's stressful. Parenting is stressful. You know, so parenting a child on the autism spectrum is just, again, it's an A-grade level. It's a higher, a higher professional level of parenting. But if you get stuck in and you do the work, and I would encourage the dads listening to this, it feels like sometimes you're pushing it up the hill and it feels like you're not getting anywhere and you feel overwhelmed and you're allowed to have all of those feelings. But I promise you the best feeling you will ever have is knowing that you never missed a day. You never didn't just try. Even if you fail terribly, at least you gave it a go. If you can look back when your child's an adult and say, we were in it, we were beside him every step of the way. If you get to do that, you are a lucky man. Oh, there's a lot of good stuff there that felt like you were speaking directly to me and I got a lot out of it and I'm, uh, you know, hope others will too, but selfishly it doesn't really matter if anybody else does. That was great. So thank you, Nicole. Your podcast. <laughs> um, you, you just mentioned the dads and, and you did have a role in producing a film that's all about fatherhood and autism. People can go and watch it. Um, I'll get you to share the website. It's a beautiful little documentary. Um, I'd love if you could just share a bit about it and also what were some of the key themes or realisations that emerged hearing a number of dads talk about that experience for them. Yeah, that's interesting because a lot of people ask me that, why did you make a film about dads? You're an autism mum. Like, why, why did you do that? Fair call. I think what it was for me was a couple of things. When you start Googling around your child's diagnosis and you start looking into resources and how you may better understand your situation, there was no shortages of books written by mums. Like the autism mum story has been done to death. There's a million books, you've seen a million shows because women tend to lead that situation and when there's a problem they will jump in and and, and try and take control over it and ownership over it, which I certainly did. And I just felt that nobody needed to hear the Nicole Rogerson autism mum story, you know, 
number 2,376. Um, but no one was really talking about dads. And if we don't talk about dads and we don't show what the good ones do, then how can the young ones ever learn how to be a good one? And ironically enough, actually, I was making the documentary and I just love visuals. So you love storytelling. Um, well, I always, I just love documentaries. It was my second one. And uh, it, it sort of came, let's just tell the story by letting the dads tell the story. So I know some pretty amazing dads uh, who have raised their kids with autism. So I'm going to get those pretty amazing dads to tell their own stories. And as a result, you know, it, the, the film's been seen over 60,000 times. We have emails from men all over the world with some of the loveliest things. And to this day, I still forward every email I get about the dad film to the 12 men that were in it. My husband's one of them. Mm. Um, so that they get that feedback and reinforcement that you just changed some dude's life who lives in the north of the UK you know, who watched this on YouTube because he's struggling because his child's just been diagnosed. And and ironically, in the weeks that I was making it, I lost my own dad uh, who died in the middle of it. And he had been such a great role model to me about, you know, not the cooked breakfast. He was terrible on the cooked breakfast, but he was such a partner with my mum and such a champion of our children. And then when Jack was diagnosed, my parents, you know, they were on the team. They were on Team Jack. They were such wonderful contributors. So it was all about dads for me at that time. And, and I think for too long, the narrative has excluded them from discussions around child rearing and how we do it well. And, you know, the occasional once a year men's mental health week kind of thing ain't enough. Mm. We need to be talking about it more and showing, you know, what makes good dads, what makes good husbands, because again, you can't be what you can't see. So instead of that ridiculous old trope of, you know, what makes a good partner, somebody who's got a good job or drives a nice car or, you know, somebody who's a doctor or a lawyer, I mean, forget all that. It's got, that's not what makes a good partner. What makes a good partner is somebody who actually wants to partner with you. Mm. Oh, that's great. And is it dadfilm.com.au? Dadfilm.com.au, yeah. Or you can see it. Um, there's links to it off our website, which is autismawareness.com.au. But get a tissue. Don't don't watch it on the because <laughs> you might have a little tear a couple of times. <laughs> yeah, it's beautiful. Definitely worth a watch if you're listening to this. Um, whether or not you have kids with autism, worth a watch just to open your eyes and see a little bit more of um, what that experience has brought out for these dads. And it's a beautiful, diverse group and, uh, yeah, some wonderful reflections in there. It is nice, but it's funny that you say, you, you talk about dads with kids with autism. And I'll say this, it's, it's dads, right? I, I have a lovely friend of mine and, and I won't labour her Scottish accent, but it's, it's a lot better when it's said in Scottish. And she said, Nicole, parenting comes with all sorts of troubles. Your child's going to give you troubles. Ours just came very early in life. And it was this reminder that, guess what? No one gets out of parenting scot-free. <laughs> you can have the 10 fingers and 10 toes. You can you can have the child that seems to be developing just fine. Whereas, ironically, my group of friends now who all of our autistic children are adults, we go out for dinner and talk about all range of things, but we don't talk about our kids' autism anymore. Mm. Uh, you know, it'll be somebody else's child, you know, did something naughty or somebody else's child's got a drug problem or somebody else's child's doing something else. Like, guess what? Your kids aren't perfect. They're never going to be, there's going to be a challenge at some particular point. The more you step up to it and own it and don't deny it and be involved in the problem solving for your child, the better the outcome for all of you. So true. And what you said a little bit earlier about, I guess, that moment on the other side of the worry and the concern and the anxiousness about things, that moment of 
accepting what you have before you and and participating in it and appreciating it like surely that too is good advice for every parent so I love that just reminder that yes some of this may have particular resonance if you've got autism in your family but a lot of this is stuff that any of us could benefit from hearing whatever our context is yeah it's it's really more broadly about parenting and how we want to parent and and I always say you know parenting is a verb it's an active thing. It's something you have to do. It's not something you passively sit back and you just become a parent. You don't become the noun. You've got to be the verb. Mm. And, and you know, that's true. It, it, at different times you'll dial that up and dial that down. I'm happy to say Jack's in a position at the moment where he's not requiring a lot of input from my husband and I and we, we can be calm a little bit at the moment. But should something arise um, that he needs more support, well, we'll be there and, and support him as needed. Now, I'm not glossing over the fact that we're still allowed to worry, right? We're allowed to worry we have an adult child with a disability. So um, deep down, I really do have genuine feelings about the fact that I can never die and that we need to look at cryogenics and how we're going to keep <laughs> me alive. Um, so I, I do have those ridiculous notions, but what I do do is say, okay, Nicole, you're going to die. It's just going to happen. So let's work back from that, shall we? And let's work out what he needs in his life to live here safely and securely when his dad and I aren't around. So rather than get it, letting the idea of you not being around petrify you to the point that you don't do anything, um, it becomes a job. It's another job that you have to do. So the same thing, you needed to teach your child potty training, you needed to teach them all the things they needed to get ready for school, you needed to teach them how to behave as teenagers and the job doesn't stop as a parent. You just have to say, what do I need to do? What's left to do to make sure that he can lead a fulfilling life as an older Australian? The whole conversation, just really appreciate, yeah, you sharing your own story as well as um, a number of things you've learnt through the stories of others you've been able to engage with. To wrap our conversation up, I just want to ask you a few kind of rapid fire, single sentence or single word answer questions. Got it. You ready? I'm up for it. All right. Do you have one essential part of your daily routine that you just need to stay healthy? My dog. Do you walk your dog every day? Twice a day. Wow. What kind of dog? He's a cavoodle and I will send you a photo so that it can be somewhere on this site so people can see that he's the most attractive and best dog in Australia. And it's <laughs> a discussion. Awesome. All right. What is a single sentence you would say now to your 18-year-old self? Oh, no. <laughs> is that the sentence? <laughs> <laughs> think about it. Really think about it is what I would tell her. <laughs> Very good. All right. If your 80-year-old self was sitting with us right now, what would you want to hear from that version of Nicole speaking back to you? I really hope it's um, worry less, just mm. worry less. It turns out okay in the end. I think I look back now at in my mid-40s and I look at my early 20s and I wish I could have just patted myself on the head and said, come on, you'll be right. So I'm kind of crossing my fingers and hoping that that's what happens to my 80-year-old self. Love it. Is there a particular book or podcast or film recommendation that you would want people to go and check out 
given what we've discussed? I'm going to give you an answer, actually, and this is a bit autism-related, so I apologise, because I recently came across it and I had to buy it from Amazon and it's out of print and it required a bit of money to get it here. But it was a book written in the 60s by a, a woman called Clara Claiborne Park and it was called The Siege and, and she'd written it about her daughter who was very young and who had severe autism. And I never had read that book, um, but I knew of it. And somewhere over the years I was given a book called Exiting Nirvana. It was written by the same woman, but it was written 30 years later. And the mother had documented every single part of her daughter with autism's life. And when I say every single part, I mean every single part. She had put post-it notes uh, in a journal for years and she described what it was like parenting her daughter, not just when the book ended when she was six and she was describing severe autism, but on what her daughter's life was like into her early 40s. And it was this revelatory thing that came to me right at the right time um, when we are in the middle of Jack's early intervention that was, oh, my God, children with autism learn after the age of five. And then I had this thought, well, I've learned since I was five. I've learned things, so why wouldn't Jack? And this book was just this, I think it's a love story to her daughter. It's I don't know that she necessarily wrote it to inspire people, but I was so inspired by this mother who never gave up, who was in awe of how her daughter learned, and just noted everything down that was, look how far she's come. And this woman had a significant amount of autism. So the challenges were real, but it was a celebration of her daughter. And for me, the book was a celebration of parenting and it came to me right at the right time. So it's not the, it's not the most universal thing I realized, but um, I just bought myself a copy of it because I'd clearly given it away over the years. And I just want to have one. I want to have one to look at the cover occasionally and remind me that it got me out of a dark spot. Mm. I love that. It's a great recommendation. And dad film, obviously. Dad obviously. Film. What is one characteristic you would really most want your sons to be known for? Oh, I think my sons are known for the characteristic that I think is the most important thing is just they're really nice guys. They're lovely humans. Mm. They're, they're caring and they're sensitive. And I look at them all the time and can't believe what fabulous humans they turned out to be. And I can't believe my husband and I pulled it off. Um, neglect, that must have been it. <laughs> <laughs> they are just such bloody nice people. And if you have kids that you can hand on your heart, say that about when they're adults, well, you nailed it. I want you just to finish these two sentences for me, however, however you'd like. First one is, I am. Oh, I am a pain in the ass. <laughs> and we are we are a really great family and i'm glad to have produced it awesome nicole thank you so much for contributing your voice to this conversation it has been awesome and i'll make sure that people have the links to go and check out all the great work that you are doing this podcast has been proudly brought to you by the central coast council and produced by lead by story Music is by Josh Corkill with editing and mixing from Rowan Parry. I'm your host, Will Small. If you got value out of this conversation, then give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and share this episode with someone you think would benefit from it. We get to decide what it means to be a man in the places we find ourselves. So let's make it kind, compassionate and strong. Catch you next time on Mankind.